Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's June 28th, 2018. I am Charlie Sykes. And of course, uh, all anybody is talking about is the political earthquake caused by the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. The The level of political hysteria over the last 24 hours is as high as I've seen it since, I don't know, the previous 24 hours. But uh, we're obviously going into some very unsettled territory. We can talk at some point about the politics, but I want to talk about the influence on the judiciary, what it means for the Supreme Court, uh, what it means to lose the so-called swing vote, who becomes the swing vote now. And joining me uh, to discuss this is Adam J. White, who is, in fact, a regular contributor to the Weekly Standard, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow, Director of the Scalia Law School's C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie. It's great to be here. And I just want to echo what you said at the outset. At any moment in time, this particular confirmation fight would be exponentially more controversial than any confirmation fight we've seen, even more than Justice Thomas. And when you take that and you drop it into what's already the most poisonous and heated political year of recent memory, I think we're about to walk into something that nobody is really, really prepared for. You know, that's an interesting point. Earlier this morning, I said it's almost like we're in this this bizarre simulation with with the level of our political divide so intense, the emotion so raw. And in the simulation, somebody says, okay, what could we do to make it even more intense? How about having a rhetorical civil war about, I don't know, abortion over the next several months? And we've seen how consuming these, these confirmation fights can be. But the Kennedy fight at this particular moment in history, Donald Trump with a chance to reshape the Supreme Court for a generation, seems to have just taken everything all the way up. I don't know, is it, is, what's the highest? Is it DEFCON 1 or is it DEFCON 5? I always, I always get that wrong. <laughs> I'm not sure. I like to say that this is surely the greatest novel that Tom Wolfe and Tom Clancy ever wrote together. Absolutely. Okay, so I, I think we've already begun. I want to start off with uh, I want to start off with the significance of what's happening, and then talk about uh, who and what Kennedy was and what his legacy is going to be. And then uh, then I want to have you handicap who you think is on the short list, uh, the, the the most likely choices, and how this process is going to play out. But obviously, you know, I always struggle against you know being sucked into all of the hyperbole that this is an earthquake that this is going to be you know the the biggest supreme court uh, you know appointment ever and yet it does have that feel because justice kennedy this really was the kennedy court uh, you disagree with me at any point here but i was reading this morning in the new york times that there were 51 cases in which he was the decisive vote um on a on, on a case which justice roberts dissented and so you you do have you know, a, a court that has gone 5-4 in very unpredictable ways uh, that is about to become, that is about to be transformed. That's right. The Chief Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, had become a more significant centrist uh, swing vote in the last few years, but the court really was still the Kennedy court. And I think one of the re- reasons why his leaving the court is going to be so heated is not going to be that the, his replacement is going to pull jurisprudence in a, in, a, in a strangely different way. I mean, there'll be some changes. I think, though, what the left recognizes is that they've just lost a future in which uh, the rights that they've been expanding through the courts on, on, on hot-button social issues will cease to be uh, expanded further, or at least the growth will slow. And they're seeing that opportunity lose. I mean, Kennedy, so much of what he did, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in a bit, but so much of what he did 
was in line with traditional conservative values, things like constitutional structure and so on. And on those things, a, a conventional conservative appointee won't actually make a lot of difference. That, that judge will vote the way that Kennedy mm-hmm. tended to vote. Um, but on other issues, especially the interpretation and application of the 14th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment to create, uh, to create constitutional rights based on, on general notions of liberty, that project will have probably ceased for the foreseeable future. And that is a future that the left was counting on, um, especially when they thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Um, and that future is probably gone now. The, the the problem of of, of trying to capsulize you, you, you we we fall back on calling him the swing vote because it it is hard to categorize his ideology and I want to get to that in a moment he did certainly side with conservatives on issues like gun rights uh, campaign finance reform just this week he voted to uphold uh, the Trump uh, travel ban um, uh, signed on to the landmark decision on public employee unions but on the other side on some of the most divisive and you know con- controversial issues in, in, in the country, whether it's Roe versus Wade or affirmative action or gay rights, he was the swing vote that sided with, with liberals. So the, fir- the first question will be, um, are, you know, are, were there precedents that were set when he was on the court that are in danger of being overturned, or is there some other future here? I don't think there's going to be, at least right away, precedents being overturned, maybe not even in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do see are exceptions being poked in precedents or limits being, po- being, being wrapped around some precedents. So, say for, and we saw a little bit of that in his last, his last days on the court, right? The Masterpiece Cake Shop case, right. where previously his um, sort of leadership in expanding uh, gay rights and the right to same-sex marriage over the course of his career led a lot of people to believe that he would take that as a trump over uh, religious liberty and the First Amendment. Um, And then in this last case, Masterpiece Cake Shop, shop, he said, no, no, these are all important constitutional values, and sometimes religious liberty does prevail. And so there you saw him sort of wrapping limits around uh, some of the rights that he created. But on on so many of these issues, whether it's, and everybody's looking at abortion and same-sex marriage, it's hard to envision uh, Roe v. Wade, or Obergefell being overturned. Um, but what you could see is changes in the way that those rights bump up against other rights. And I have to say, my rule of thumb in thinking about Kennedy and his approach, a lot of people say he's unpredictable, or he's erratic, or he's a swing justice. I tended to think, in general, not always, but in general, he was pretty predictable. And I look at it in sort of in three steps. Step one for Kennedy is individual liberty is the most important thing, mm-hmm. and he expanded it in so many ways. Um, second point is that federalism and constitutional structure are important in that they help preserve, number one, liberty. So he was a big proponent of structure and federalism, at least when he saw it as a means to the end of liberty. And then third, lastly, above all, above all of this, he was a proponent of energetic judicial power in service of number one and number two. Is, is, is that a way of saying that he was an activist judge? I'd say energetic judge. and Or actually, you know what I would say? I would say an, an undeferential judge. Yeah, he seemed to have a, uh, a sweeping view of, of the ability of judges to discern what is the right thing to do, to pick out uh, you know, the, 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 the deeper meaning of the Constitution, which I think obviously made him very unpopular among some judicially conservative circles. Fair statement? Yeah, that's a fair statement. Now, I, ironically, one of his last opinions on the court 
um, just a few days ago in an administrative law case. He had a separate opinion where he raised some doubts about Chevron deference. He said maybe the court's been getting this wrong recently. Maybe Chevron deference is now being applied in counterproductive ways. And maybe it's time for courts to be less deferential mm. to agencies in interpreting the statutes. That's something that a lot of conservatives celebrate. I wrote an op-ed just pointing out how interesting it was to see him make that statement um, days before I knew he was going to retire. Um, but that's a place where he was undeferential in a way that the conservative zeitgeist seems to be headed. But you're right. In general, conservatives were very critical of Kennedy when he was undeferential either to, to Congress um, or to uh, to the states, at least in the in the cases where it was a hot button uh, conservative policy issue. Well, well, let's go back to some of the the, the key decisions, and and, and you mentioned uh, the, the the case about the 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 wedding cake, and mm-hmm. I was struck by how wishy washy that case was. You know, particularly in contrast to you know some of the the the, the language of the the gay marriage case, and it it did strike me that you know you know when he signed on to what is the, the case that I think he's probably going to be most remembered for, uh, the you know sweeping legalization of, of gay marriage. He did leave the question, okay, how will this be applied? What, what now is the constitutional status of the many Americans who have religious qualms or religious objections to this particular practice? And this, mm-hmm. of course, was hanging fire about the, the very complicated question of religious freedom versus public accommodation laws. And I didn't get the sense that he confidently wanted to wade into that legal world. You know, I have a piece out recently. If you don't mind me mentioning one no, of our, not our, friends, our friends at, a, at another publication, um, because when I'm not writing for the Weekly Standard, yeah. I, I write for commentary. And I have a piece out right now called Cake Boss. Um, I can't take any credit for that headline. Uh, so a, a creative editor came up with it. But I, I traced Kennedy's um, evol- his, 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 his trajectory of cases on this question of dignity. He was always phrasing it in terms of dignity. This goes all the way back to Romer versus Evans, the 1990s case, I think 1994, where he first um, led the court in striking down a Colorado referendum that Hmm. limited um, the ability of the state to make uh, sexual identity a, a protected class. And he talked there about laws that are intended to demean um, or strip mm. dignity away from from individuals, and that was the thread that connected all the marriage cases from there to Windsor, which is the case striking down the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, and then um, and also Lawrence v. Texas before that, the the case about um, the right to engage in, in homosexual sodomy, and then most famously this last case in Obergefell. But along the way, he also raised this theme in the Hobby Lobby case, in his opinion, in the Hobby Lobby case, and the threat that people are uh, being demeaned because of their religion. And so I think he was cognizant of this of this coming from the very beginning. And uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop was the place in which he reminded folks on the left that uh, dignity works in both directions, or that everybody has dignity, mm-hmm. not just certain subclasses of people. And actually, the last, his final statement on this came in the travel ban case. He has a short, separate opinion in uh, Trump versus Hawaii. And the last paragraph, I won't quote it, but I really urge our listeners to take a look at it. He talks about the First Amendment um, and the need for guarantees of freedom of speech, um, freedom of belief and expression, uh, in conjunction with all of the other, these other constitutional values. And he even invokes Romer versus Evans, that Colorado case about uh, from the 90s about gay rights and dignity. So he really brought everything 
together in this last couple of weeks of the um, of, of his time on the court, which in hindsight uh, is seems is seems very intentional. The uh, I think there seems to be a broad consensus um, that you're you're not going to see much action, you know, over, overturning the gay marriage ruling. I completely agree with you on, on that. However, obviously, over the next several months, we're going to hear a tremendous amount about Roe versus Wade. And it it for the very first time, I've always assumed that look, Roe, you know, it's it's a good fight to fight, but uh, Roe versus Wade is never going to be actually overturned. Uh, it's it, that that's just too big, uh, you know, it's too big a rock to overturn. You know, the the the, uh, the social and political consequences would be too great. But it does appear that for the first time, whether with this appointment or possibly with the next appointment, that that's that's in play. It is possible. So, you know, again, we're going to be hearing about this. I'm guessing that the debate over the future of Roe versus Wade is going to suck a lot of the oxygen out of the other issues we, we've talked about. So tell me why you don't think that Roe versus Wade itself would be overturned. I mean, just this week, the justices, you know, showed their willingness and their, uh, you know, their 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 their, will, well, their willingness to uh, to overturn Supreme Court precedent. So why not on this one? Okay. Well, let me start by saying what I do think will happen in this okay. issue, just so readers, uh, listeners, know where I'm ending up. There's going to be cases in which uh, regulations of uh, of abortion um, from the states and maybe from the federal government. Uh, there'll be raised new regulations. There'll be arguments over whether they're what the precedents call undue burdens on the right to abortion. And I think the new court might give more leeway to those sorts of regulations. Of course, Kennedy himself was willing to give more leeway to things like that and the federal and state regulation of partial birth abortion and so on. So this was a place where, there, where Kennedy himself already left some room for states to experiment. But in terms of an actual overturning of Roe versus Wade, what does this require? Right. This requires a state to pass a law that, that, that contradicts the core right of, to abortion in Roe v. Wade. Then it requires a lawsuit challenging that state that raises um, the federal constitution as, a, as, as the grounds for overturning it, not the state constitution. And I think litigants are going to get savvy about this, and they're going to recognize that in a lot of places you might have a situation where the state Supreme Court is well-positioned to strike down the state law under the state constitution, which means the issue never gets to the federal Supreme Court at all. It's only in those cases where you have a state that passes a law that violates the core right of um, in Roe versus Wade, and then a federal lawsuit asserting the federal constitution and it gets all the way up to the Supreme Court, and then it's ripe for judgment. That's that's actually a much more limited scenario than a lot of people are playing on. When Jeffrey you know, Tubin tweets that 28 was, judges was- are... Sorry, okay, I'm sorry. I was just trying to look up Jeffrey Tubin's comment. Do you have it in front yeah. of you? No, I don't. But he said something like 20 states will outlaw abortion in the next 18 months or something like that. Yeah, that 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 struck me as uh, as a perfectly as as a perfect example of the kind of hyperbole we have, uh, and we're going to see a lot more of in this particular debate. All right, I want to talk about uh, the 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 short list and whether or not we're ever going to see someone um, like an Anthony Kennedy on the court again. Uh, who is the most Kennedy-like, if there's anyone? Um, who would be the most uh, Scalia-like? But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. The world-leading VPN provider that lets you privately and securely use the Internet at blazing fast speeds without being tracked by anybody because, yes, you are being tracked. Mobile carriers, Internet service providers, potentially hackers all have access to your web history and your Internet data. 
So how can ExpressVPN help? Well, ExpressVPN encrypts your traffic and all of your sensitive data while masking your IP address, concealing your online activity from everybody. Now, with all the news lately about data hacks and breaches, it's hard not to worry about data privacy. It's hard for me not to worry about my data privacy. I mean, no matter what you do online, your mobile carrier, internet provider are tracking it, Comcast, Verizon, Time Warner, the list goes on and on. Companies like this have a record of every single thing you do. You know that, right? Every website you visit, every email you send. You know, frankly, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. So that's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. In fact, I'm using it right now. These days, I don't use the internet without it. So again, your internet data is encrypted. Your IP address is hidden. Here's the call to action. To take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free, go to expressvpn.com slash standard. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash standard for three months with that's free with a one-year package. Every day you use the internet without ExpressVPN, you're putting your sensitive information at risk. So don't put this off. Protect your data online today with ExpressVPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash standard to learn more. Okay, uh, Adam White. A lot of people are, of course, uh, coming up with the short lists for the Supreme Court. Uh, let's start with the probably the most basic question. Is there any, any prospect that Donald Trump will name somebody who will be Anthony Kennedy-like to the court? Well, I don't think I, th- I think uh, Kennedy is what we call in the law sui generis. I don't think I don't think you'll get somebody just like Kennedy. But what you could find is uh, the president appointing somebody who takes a much more expansive view of constitutional liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not in the same direction that Kennedy took it on on social issues, but you could see it on social or uh, on economic issues. Somebody, somebody in this category would be Judge Don Willett of Tech. Uh, well, he was on the Supreme Court of Texas. He's now on the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, George Will's a fan of his. Randy Barnett is. Um, a lot of libertarians like him because he would be uh, much less deferential to federal and state regulation in general. And sometimes this carries over into the social sphere, where you'll have libertarians who support, you know, um, positions that are more commonly. Um, affiliated to um, with the, with the mm-hmm. liberal left, so I'd say you could get somebody like that, like Don Willett, but I wouldn't compare him to Kennedy. I mean, they, they are just fundamentally different. But yeah, you I, could I, get I, you could get a libertarian. Yeah, Anthony Kennedy in the current environment seems like a, kind of a, a throwback. Okay, so uh, if you're drawing up your list of the top, I don't know, you want to go five, or you want to go six. So is, that's up to you, Adam White. What do you what do you uh, want? To, who who's at the top of your list right now? Okay, so, and, and by the way, obviously we're all speculating. Yeah, we're all speculating, and there's there's a lot of good folks. Um, the names that jump out at me first, um, there's four. First of all, there's Amy Coney Barrett, formerly professor at Notre Dame, was just appointed to the Seventh Circuit. She performed so well in her confirmation hearing, especially under fire, when senators like Dianne Feinstein um, blasted her for being too Catholic. Mm-hmm. Feinstein infamously said, the dogma is strong within you. Uh, Barrett was she performed so well under fire that that probably got a lot of, of uh, folks' attention. Um, second, uh, can, well, you she's wanna, 40, and uh, she's forty six years old. Just yeah. shifting to the political world, you know, if if you really want to, if you really want to mess with Democrat minds, you know, not only is would she be on the court for another forty years, but to appoint a a young woman 
to that seat would certainly be uh, an, an interesting political move by the president. Yeah, and on that point, the other one that I have in mind is Joan Larson, for, uh, who's now on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. She was put there by President Trump. Now, she and I, I have to admit, I'm sort of a personal a personal fan of her. She and I clerked for the same lower court judge, um, but she's been great. Um, she she would be, I think, she seems like she would be great in the Scalia mold. She's a former Scalia clerk. Um, she did well in her confirmation, and it would be it would be ironic if um, if the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the United States Supreme Court was Amy Coney Barrett or Joan Larson. Hmm. So that would be that would be those two would both be good picks on the merits. But then of course the politics is good as well. Um, in addition, um, I I think Brett Kavanaugh um, will have to get a close look. He's really one of the leading conservative judges of his generation, especially on the sorts of structural constitutional issues and administrative state issues that have become so important for the coalition supporting President Trump. So I think Ju- Judge Kavanaugh has to be a, um, a leading candidate. And he, he's also, he's, he's 53. So again, you know, with, within that range of somebody who could be on that court for decades. Right. Um, two more. Uh, Judge Thomas Hardiman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. He was basically, as, as I think as we all understand, at the runner-up to Judge Gorsuch last time. Um, which obviously, which means he obviously impressed the folks that were vetting judges last time, and so I, I think we'd, we'd have to be foolish to to not uh, include Hardiman in the conversation. Um, well, especially I, I, because I mean he he serves with Trump's sister, right? That's right. You That's know, how, people people, how he, people forget that Trump has a sister who is a, a a federal appeals court judge, right? And and I will say, you know, Hardiman. Was I was less familiar with him when his name popped up last time, but I've I've gotten to read some of his opinions and actually saw him speak once um, at a conference, and he he was very eloquent and 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 so I'm sure that impressed a lot of people. He's he must be a serious candidate. He's and the 52. last one, yeah, very young. And the last yeah. one who also was in the running last time, uh, evidently, was Judge uh, William Bill Pryor of the Eleventh Circuit. Um, I think he he like Kavanaugh is one of the real great judges of his generation. Um, he's been an eloquent, um, an, an eloquent speaker and writer, even before his time on the court, back when he was um, Attorney General of Alabama. I mean, his political career thrown in the spotlight when he was the one enforcing the court's rulings against Judge Roy Moore when Moore was originally mm-hmm. trying to put the Ten Commandments on, on state property um, back in around 2003. Pryor has been one of the best judges of his generation and an eloquent uh, author, especially thinking through the intersection of religion and the state and the religious duties and civic duties of, of government officials. And he's really grappled with this. I'm a big, big fan of his. I don't know where he is in the mix anymore. I mean, nobody knows where anybody is in the mix anymore. Um, it seems like he finished sort of a distant third last time, but I hope he gets a look this time. Yeah, and as I mentioned to you before we did the podcast, uh, my oldest son Jay actually clerked for uh, for, for for Judge Pryor. And of course, the the politics of Alabama are incredibly complicated uh, these days. Uh, yeah. You know, especially given the fact that I, I assume that the that the Judge Pryor was somewhat close with Jeff Sessions, who is um, I think well known not to be close to the president at the moment. That's, that's uh, right. Pryor was his protege. There's one more name I want to throw in the mix. Sure. Is that sure. Okay? Um, Senator Mike Lee. Uh, it's funny. Mm-hmm. Lee had been in the Senate for just a handful of weeks when he had his first hearing, Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, and he was so good on, in the constitutional debates in that hearing that I wrote a blog post for the Weekly Standard back in, gosh, fe- February of 2011 saying, Mike Lee for the Supreme Court. 
And uh, everything he's done in the Senate since then has only reinforced that view for me. And I, I heard yesterday his name was popping up a little bit. I might be wrong, but I think I heard that Ted Cruz had sort of put Mike Lee forward as a, as a candidate. Well, they um, used to be regarded as best friends in the Senate. Yeah, and, Remember, there and, was a long time, it was Cruz and Lee all the time. I don't know. Right, uh, out, of, out of the Tea Party, along with, with Rubio in that 2010 election. And, and you know, obviously, uh, the, the, the putting a, senator, a, sit, a sitting senator into the mix has political complications of its own. Some might say he would get an extra boost in the Senate. That's almost certainly not true now. Uh, but but anyway, he would be, I think, another really great justice, and so I hope he is getting a serious look. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be interesting because, of course, you have all these rules of Senate decorum that you're not allowed to attack somebody on the floor, and and obviously there was is at least some vestiges of the uh, of the collegiality. On the other hand, as a politician, he has a he has a long paper trail, and of course, this term always comes up every time. We have one of these confirmation hearings. Uh, you know, he not only has a paper trail on constitutional law, but, you know, speeches he's given, votes he's taken, and all of those things. You know, one thing strikes me as you go down the list. Um, this process feels different than in, in previous years because in, in, in terms of the quality, which makes it kind of ironic given the you know, often the dysfunction of the Trump administration, this is one of those areas where the Trump administration seems to have outsourced this to people who take this issue very, very seriously. It's not a secret that the Federalist Society has had a tremendous role to play in coming up with, with this list. This list strikes me as kind of the gold-plated list that any Republican president whether it was President Bush or Rubio or Cruz, um, you know, or Romney, that they would have chosen from as well. That this is not a Trumpian list in that sense. I think that's right. But, um, and even speaking of somebody who was vocally critical of President Trump throughout the campaign and who remains vocally critical of him so often, I think the fact of the list is something that we're, we're going to look back with hindsight and see as fundamentally changing Supreme Court politics. That's now my, that yeah. The, yeah, mm -hmm. now that this list has happened, I think any future serious presidential candidate on either side, Democrat or Republican, is going to have to do something like this. I think this list, um, which on the whole I think has been a great thing, although obviously interjecting the Supreme Court into politics is, is always uh, uh, explosive and in some ways counterproductive, but this list, I think, was a real victory for conservatives. And I think institutionally, it is going to be something we see in presidential campaigns to come as a regular feature. And in that way, I think this list, whether it was President Trump's idea or anybody else's idea, is a fundamental change in judicial politics. I, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, it, it, the uh, you know, it, but but earlier you you made the point at the very very top of the podcast that uh, this is going to be potentially this is going to be a, a confirmation fight unlike anything we've seen just given the the political climate given the toxicity of of the debate um, you know and so it, you know even though these are highly qualified candidates uh, you know don't expect it to, to be. Don't expect it to be a civil process, but you know, quite frankly, for for those of us who you know are categorized as as never Trump, I do think this is going to be a clarifying moment because you know if we are intellectually honest, we have to ask ourselves, you know, you know, what would our position have been if a President Rubio or a President Bush had named, say, Brett Kavanaugh to to this seat? Is there any way in which we would have opposed that nomination? And I don't think so. And looking back to the Gorsuch uh, the nomination, I don't believe that even the harshest conservative critics of Donald Trump 
thought that that was a bad choice. So this creates a very, very unusual dynamic. But I want to ask you one in the, in the minutes we have left. One other concern that I think is is legitimate that it's the question of checks and balances. Um, you know whether or not we have we have three co-equal branches of of government. And right now, there is the sense, and it's not just on the left, I don't think, that 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 Donald Trump is is uh, uh, you know has there there's a possibility that Donald Trump is, you know, has fewer checks on his power than many of his predecessors. You have a Republican Congress that is, uh, you know, very, you know, reluctant to stand up with him, not providing any oversight, a lot of hopes in the courts, providing check on executive overreach with a conservative majority shaped by Donald Trump. There are a lot of folks who are saying, you know, is this now going to be a president who dominates American politics with fewer constraints than anyone else? Would this conservative majority court be reluctant to push back? And, and here's specifically, at some point, you know, some of the fruits of the Mueller investigation may rise to this court, this with you know a, a Trump majority court, including questions about whether or not the president has the power to pardon himself. So mm-hmm. give me that sense about whether a conservative court would be less likely to provide checks and balances to this president. Well, it might be less likely than if it were nine justices appointed by Democratic presidents. (laughs) Uh, But on the whole, I'm less worried about this. First of all, Chief Justice Roberts, um, I think, is going to be very independent on those issues. All the justices will. Justice Gorsuch had an opinion uh, just this term where he sided with the four liberal justices in an immigration case. Um, he, he had a, he had constitutional reasons for doing so, rooted in what we call the non-delegation doctrine, Congress writing statutes that are, that are too vague. Um, but I think they'll be independent about these things. Um, it's ironic in this confirmation hearing, Democrats will probably criticize the nominee for being, for not being deferential enough as a judge to administrative agencies, which is going to be one of the great ironies of this fight. (laughs) I'd say on the whole though, and this is something I'm working on for a piece for the standard, so I'll just mention it in advance. On the whole, what we're about to see, the debates over the pardon power, the impeachment power, and prosecutorial discretion are all issues that are deeply constitutional, but not legalistic. And they don't lend themselves very easily to the usual uh, judicial line drawing, which means they're going to be very difficult to settle in court. And ultimately, they're going to be settled by the American people in elections to come. And that is the real challenge for all of us today. It's what I call our constitutional moment. We're about to have to grapple with profoundly challenging constitutional issues ourselves as the American people and not just uh, hand these things off to the Supreme Court to decide. Well, the, one of the decisions the court might have decided is, is, is if, of course, the president doesn't want to sit down with Robert Mueller and they subpoena him. Mm-hmm. And the question of whether or not the special counsel can subpoena the president of the United States. I mean, that would that, that is a legalistic question, correct? That, that's, that is a legalistic question. I've written a little bit about that. I think uh, I actually wrote about it um, in, the, in the Standard with Stuart Taylor. And that's one of those issues where I think people who, who assumed that Mueller could easily subpoena Trump under the Clinton v. Jones precedent and um, uh, a couple other um, – the Nixon uh, subpoena, the tape subpoena precedent – and a D.C. Circuit president, they've read those three cases as suggesting that this is a slam dunk case. It's really not. And I think that's a very challenging legal issue. It could be one of the courts could sort out themselves, but it's, it's, it's not black and white at all. Adam Wine, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.